0: From Hydroponic
1: Sound System. I ain't trying to be the dude with all the flow and none of the loot. All love but no laughter after I recoup. It's all about balance and I bring that with my sound. Though it ain't no more than one or two rap stars from my town. Wanna well, make great records with tight beats but after I eat. So follow me, living not solemnly but scholarly. On that level, my father be comfy. What if I never do that? Cause of how some of you act, you can't classify some spiritual. My job ain't underground, my truth is just lyrical. I ain't gonna act dumb as hell to get a hit, but I will have record sales in a little bit. If you read and write, I got something you gon' like. Broadcasting live, new non-white, Cronkite words beyond tight. I'm talking different dimensions, it'll be known whenever my name's mentioned. I'm trying to disencourage neither as an artist
2: so that right there is probably my favorite remix that i've ever worked on along with my production partner ruben ayala we were the hydroponic sound system and we did a remix for that song b-a-h-v-o-o by the artist bavu blakes i actually heard the song before i met him It was on his debut album, Create and Hustle. And when I heard that jam, I really wanted to remix it. And so I was pretty happy several years later that not only had I worked with Bavu on several songs, but that I did get to remix that song. Throughout the course of this podcast, you'll hear several collaborations that we did with Bavu. But more importantly, you'll hear what he's been doing the last several years, which is trying to make things better for kids in the school system in Austin, Texas. I'm Jeff Wade, and this is Radios and Tunnels. We talk about music and film and sports, but today we're going to talk about the people in the education system that actually give a damn. People like my good friend, Bavu Blakes. Like a lot of us in our 20s, he put education on hold at the University of Texas and went chasing the rapper dream. But when he went back and got his master's, got married, set the course and he's been raising his young family in Austin, but also helping to shape the lives of kids in the school district there in Austin, Texas. Kids that a lot of people don't care about. They're just trying to shove through the system, move on to the next. But that's not the mindset of Bavu, and that's why I wanted to have him on the podcast. We'll talk music, because we always do every time we get together, which is way too infrequent these days. But more importantly, we'll talk about how he sees how the public education system should be, and you'll hear his very interesting blockbuster theory. I think you're going to dig it. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so how long you been teaching school
0: well i taught school for six years from august of 2013 until mlk weekend of this year so it's been about nine months since i taught school but it was uh um, six years roughly let me do the math august 2013 january 2019
2: Five, and a, half, five so you, and a half years. You know, you're old when you have to start like doing the math in your head on anything. Yep. I've experienced that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So, so what was that experience like for you? Well, first of all, what were your expectations of what that was going to be like versus what it was
0: actually like? <laughs> Great question. I expected that I would be helping young people from like right where I live because the school is, you know, right up the street, six miles from door to door. And that I would be helping young people in a, you know, relatively underserved educational environment to sharpen up on their critical thinking and English skills and, you know, things of that nature. And what happened that was a lot different is I realized a couple of things. One, that if you are open to it, you're going to learn just as much, if not more, from the children, the students than they learn from you. Um, two, I got a, and yeah, I think there's more than two answers here. I got a super deep dive into what the educational process and system on a public school level, what it is. Um, and then three, just also the reason that I went there was to learn what kind of makings of a scholar that I had. Um, and I guess I, I kind of want to back up to go forward when you ask that question like that's a. That's an hour worth of a question you just asked me. Well,
1: you, you can what make the you, answer as long as you okay, want. Okay,
0: because it's like, what did you expect compared to what you learned? Yeah, I, I expected to be, you know, a teacher getting started. And, oh, I'm grateful because it's right up the street and it's, you know, it's the neighborhood or the the type of uh, the slice of society that I want to be useful to. I want because who context? It's Austin. Mm-hmm. And you've heard about Austin. And how Austin is always changing. Right. So Austin is almost going through like an ethnic cleansing process because right there in the middle of town, right there, east of thirty five is where you neatly saw most black people lived north on the east side of thirty five. And once you go south of there, it's all the brown folks between the river and what you call the Holly Street plant until it kind of bleeds itself into the black community. And this is by design from, you know, roughly 80-something years ago, the city council came up with this plan and said, hey, let's take utilities away and let's make it convenient for the black people to live here, the brown people to live here. So, after that specific city council plan, 1928, that's kind of the way the city's designed. And there's this east side, west side kind of thing. And I noticed uh, when we were in the lobby out there, there was some company called, like, Gentrify something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... Long story short, immigrant, refugee, low-income communities are moving to the margins. And I'm in a district where I am teaching called Mainer ISD. It's in Austin, but it's Maynard ISD. And so that campus is, it's like a district set up to be a low-income district. Mm -hmm. So what I found was students that were marginalized in four specific ways. There was language, there was culture, there was geography, um, and there's socioeconomics. So we're on the last, like the easternmost street in town. If you go across the street and keep walking, you fall into a lake. If you survive that lake, you're in the city of Maina. So we're on the edge, edge, edge of town, right? Wow. So I get there, and I'm expecting that, you know, yeah, I can help people learn English or, you know, love reading or express themselves through writing or be creative. And all those things were true. But I had no idea what I was getting myself into as far as where I was. And so what happened is you go in and people kind of say, hey, you got to be tough with these kids and don't Mm -hmm. smile till January. And, you know, all that kind of talk. And you go in, you know, sort of trying that a little bit, slapping desks, thinking about yourself as an authority figure. And lo and behold, students, if you're listening, because I know there's a lot of different approaches to being a, a classroom teacher, But for me, they really just softened me up, softened my heart, showed me how to listen, showed me how to learn with, showed me how to focus on, like, individual relationships to the hilt. And I had a lot of good mentorship because I walked into a situation where there was a lot of adults, a lot of staff, principals, et cetera, who really cared about the environment and the community we're serving. Mm Mm-hmm. Most of the students live right by the school or right down the street, up the street from the school. My neighborhood happens to be zoned to that school as well, which was kind of perfect at the time. Um, But yeah, there was just all these folks who were either tied to East Austin specifically or tied to the Mainer District or their children were in the district or their children were at the school or their children were substituting at the school. And most of the faculty did not live at the school, but there were a few that I got pretty close to. And taught their kids or work with their kids, et cetera, who, you know, live right around the street from me. So what I learned. Oh, man, what a big question. Just how deep communities run. I learned how disparate the culture and populations and, you know, how how deep that marginalization tends to be along those lines I described in public education by design. Um, I learned that. Relationships and really just Seeing people Adults or children Is what gets you the farthest Mm -hmm. I learned that The test pressure stuff Is really kind of fake And not that important because You can largely predict those numbers A week before the school year even starts Mm -hmm. Largely right? There's some things you can do But it's like more so focusing on growth of individual students and what they need and focusing on community and paying attention to what kids are into and how they treat each other. I developed all these different questions that I want to learn about. And that's what I actually do at work now.
2: Okay. We'll, we'll get back to that in a second. Mm-hmm. But, um, do you think that, cause the people that I talk to that work in the school business, public school business, and mm-hmm. I feel somewhat attached to it because my dad was in that he was a coach, but you know, mm-hmm. by the time I was older, he had gotten out of it. But my aunt and uncle stayed in it. They were principals and teachers all the way through and stuff. So yeah. I, I felt somewhat connected to that world. But I feel like now I meet a lot of people that work in the school business that are that feel like they're just trying to survive. And <laughs> that's not like a way to be productive humans when you're trying to survive. Because if they're trying to survive, well, guess what that means? The students are just trying to survive.
0: Correct. So, there's a lot of folks trying to survive.
2: Just trying to survive. Did, that, did going through that experience... Did it, was it, I don't want to say was it positive or negative, but did you have more inspiration coming out of that or more deflation coming out of that?
0: I kind of thrived from that. Uh-huh. The autonomy, the freedom. The ability to learn multiple languages, in other words, you have like instructional coach language, teacher to teacher language, teacher to student language, teacher to principal language, teacher to assistant principal, teacher to assistant um, central office, and teacher to all these different initiatives that you're supposed to be doing, like the AVID stuff and the PBL stuff and the small group stuff. I started to thrive on learning and finding connections between those languages and realizing that if you're informed about anything that anybody's going to approach you about. They leave you alone,
2: mm-hmm. right,
0: <laughs> right, right. So yeah. I learned how to carve out autonomy just by becoming literate in all these different conversations, mm-hmm. and that they would basically show up and kind of check your literacy on what it because. Some of the people that are coming to check on you or lord over you as a teacher, they're not necessarily into what it is they're coming to check for you about. In other words, that survival mode goes well beyond the classroom and the Mm -hmm. teacher. Right. So once I figured that out, I've tried to become literate in the different languages, figure out where they meet and figure out how to translate them to what's best for my students. And that is a really big part. And that's what makes your question amazing is You either have agency and belief that you can figure it out and be worth something in that Mm -hmm. position. Right. Or you just struggle. Right. And that struggle just defines you forever and you're hanging on for retirement and it does pass down to the kids. And whatever the adults are experiencing and living always translates to students. Mm -hmm. So when you hear a lot of talk about achievement gap and students, are they learning or not? They're learning. They're learning whatever that experience is. They're learning whatever that environment is, that culture is, that climate is. And once I learned that, I just started really getting into taking agency and leaning into relationships and kind of really it all came from hip hop culture. That,
2: I was going to go there.
0: It's with where you it eventually. all came from. Yeah. Because as indie artists, mm-hmm. as indie producers and indie DJs. That's what we did all the time. Right. We had to speak all these multiple languages in order to promote an agenda, in order to move things in the direction of what we thought was good and appropriate and fitting for the culture, for our city, for our community, for our friends. That's all we did. That's an interesting kind of... uh
2: I don't know. It was almost like yeah, you sort of predicted where you were going. Your first record was called Create and Hustle. Yes. And that's kind of a mentality of what you're describing. Absolutely.
0: Uh, in the school system, basically. That's a, it's exactly what I'm doing in the school system. And it's just getting like more and more defined. Like at this point in life, I get paid to learn. The name of my class was WRLS. I get paid to write, read, listen, speak. Is kind of all I do. We're doing it right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, for free. Okay, well, uh, let's talk talk about what you're doing now. Okay. Uh, A few things. Um, Number one, I work at Austin ISD, and I'm a cultural proficiency and inclusiveness specialist. So I work under a woman by the name of Dr. Angela Ward. She's been alone working, um, and by alone in title, uh, working as kind of a relatively low-ranking person who's really high-ranking and important to the district in the area of educational equity, which amounts to identity safety. Which amounts to when this student walks in here as a lesbian, what is predictable about their educational experience in terms of their success or failure Mm -hmm. at a particular campus or just within our district period? When this person walks in here as a brown person, which is 62% of the students in the district, right? And then 62 percent of the teachers in the same district are white. Right. Mm -hmm. What's predictable about that? So her focus was how do we reduce the predictability and get people what they need? So, again, back to the whole, you know, individual relationships and kind of leveraging resources and having your own agency to do what's best for students. That was my background. Once I got out of graduate school, I was like, man, I want to be some kind of cultural officer or maybe work in social, emotional learning. And there's a whole story with that as far as some of the experiences I was having on my campus and some of the new things I was creating or a part of creating on my campus led me straight to her. And I'm talking to uh, last, this time last year, I'm talking to my superintendent. Hey, man, I want to be some kind of cultural officer, social, emotional learning. What can we create in the district? Because look at who we serve. Mm-hmm. This is what our students need. And he was like, eh, nah, nah. So next thing you know, the bigger district with 10 times everything creates it. And I'm over there. And what we do is we design and we deliver professional learning. We coach principals. We coach teachers. We work with central office people. And it's all around kind of that concept of identity safety. So we're leaning into anti-racism or ways to be less punitive or sometimes what's called restorative practices. Uh, there's some of it that's around like whiteness studies. There's some of this that's around um What else? Uh, There's a lot, but it really comes speak up, which is more like uh, interrupting bias or prejudice or hate speech. Right. You know, uh, between students or between adults, et cetera. Um, Then we have grants that kind of circle around student agency as well. And students having a voice around equity, which requires leaders to be trained in the same thing. It's it's a mixed bag of things and no day really looks the same except when we're doing these professional learning sessions.
2: Are people receptive that you work with? Are the teachers receptive to what y'all are doing? Yes,
0: especially the younger teachers. Mm -hmm. But really in general, because it speaks to a problem that everybody's trying to solve, which is we're not serving most of our students well. Right. And no matter what data point or no matter what, faces we look at it no matter what lunchroom we walk into it becomes pretty obvious and it's something that normally is focused on well those schools you know the schools of others the schools full of black and brown low-income kids that's very predictable right but i would argue from what i understand and what i see that in general education is in this blockbuster phase
2: oh uh, yes yeah, yeah. about the stores being phased out
0: Yeah, well, it's a Blockbuster phase because Blockbuster's the big dog. And Mm -hmm. we're all going there. We're buying our tapes. And Blockbuster's in a perfect position because they hold tapes. They're a warehouse. They pay a clerk. We drive from home to Blockbuster. Find a tape we want if it's there. We drive back home. We play it in our own machine. We drive it back to the store again. And if it's not rewound, they charge us. If it's late, they charge us. If we go to the store and they don't have a movie that we know is available on VHS yet, we don't get to charge them a late fee. (laughs) So they have all the juice, right? Mm -hmm. So what does that look like in education? Well, a late fee is a student who's behind but still gets passed to the next grade because systematically that's just what you do. You don't retain kids because you don't want your dad to look bad. This kid has never passed a star test in his life, but we still advance her to the next grade knowing that the work and the reading expectations and everything about – her academic experience is becoming more complex, but we still move her up late fees. Then you have students who are extremely advanced. Right. Mm-hmm. But we're really trying to get students ready to pass the star test and maximize our star data because we treat star like it's the most important thing ever, especially right. when it's star season. Right. So the student who's ahead and could, could have passed it two years ago. We don't really know what to do with him. Right. But as long as his parents don't bother us, maybe he can just sit in the corner and read a novel because we know he can pass the test. Right, it, right. Just get out of, you know.
2: You're, you're, you're really not teaching them things. You're training them to pass these standardized tests. You can yes. You continue to get the funding that you need. And if
0: they're covered, they're the least of your worries. And if you don't think they could ever do it, then they're the least of your worries. So maybe they need to go somewhere else to, like, the slow people place, the lay fee room. Mm-hmm. And maybe they need to go to, like, the rewind fee room so we can focus on our majority middle who may or may not pass. They call it bubble kids mm-hmm. and focus on that all year with respect to the test. Not learning, not creativity, not pulling out, not dreams, not communities, not families, just tests, Right. And it's a state requirement. And even the expectations around that test are really skewed in a way that kind of sets up the repetition of that predictability, even in the numbers that are on those tests. So that's pretty complex. Um, I'm I'm just talking now. Like I don't. No, I'm listening to all
2: list of it. Cause <laughs> it makes me think of a lot of different things. One thing it makes me think about is oh, blockbuster. That's where we. Right. That's where we got. But one thing it makes me think about is because you know now my kids, my son's a a, a sixth grader and he's mm-hmm. twelve, mm-hmm. and his birthday was September fourth, so he's mm-hmm. one of the older kids. It's my wife's birthday. My dad's oh, a great birthday, Tiff. Mm-hmm. My daughter Beyonce. is a fourteen year old uh, freshman, and her birthday's late June. So she is one of the youngest in the grade. Mm-hmm. And so we start thinking about a, a, a lot of different things. One, their maturity level, social interaction. But it almost makes me think about like grades maybe not or is important. Not, not uh, your letter grade, but the classification grade, sixth grader, seventh grader. Because people develop at different rates, both mm-hmm. socially and intellectually and emotionally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you're saying all this, I'm sort of thinking,
0: man, we're really operating in an outdated system. Blockbuster.
2: Yeah, exactly. We're
0: sorting by age, like we're making a food product or a drink product. As opposed
2: to level of aptitude, both socially and academically. Like the social aspect is is the weirdest part for me because I don't know how badly I would imagine you take a situation, and if it's bad, it's completely exacerbated by social media. Mm -hmm. The ways in which, like, I have seen fights – that my daughter's classmates have had, because kids posted the fight as it's going down
0: constantly, constantly it posting is, the fight live
2: and and then what that does is that gives the kids at least winning the fight a level of celebrity in their social world, so then they strive to do it more. Mm-hmm. It is a crazy machine mm-hmm. it's it's daunting and scary and and a lot of different things. and I feel like there's, you know, we go back to that initial word, they're just, everyone's just trying to survive as mm-hmm. opposed to do, educate yeah. and stimulate in the things that, you know, I think, I think the way that the system that we grew up in, it wasn't perfect, but it seems like it's worse now. But
1: it's got to be. Distractions such as race and class, immigration, inflation, tax rates, gas prices, all heists in the name of war. War on drugs, war on terrorism, war on our women through television, magazines, marketing, more. Labor strikes, price hikes, price line, the price is right if you're in the right place at the right time. Sell your life through insurance, this sure is peculiar. We instruments of institutions who treat us like tourists. Buy some land, yeah, that's your best bet. Money leans, country can't seem to get out of debt yet. Advertisers agenda set, to partisan politics pop culture, profits off the folks most Jobless, and the rich stay rich. Pimps, hoes, impoverished. My little head was switched, trying to handle us all. This you can't be serious. I know I ain't hearing this correctly, so clear it up. I'm thinking easy, I'm saying. The flowers,
0: it's just mass processing. Mm-hmm. It's factory style. Yeah. Which is why I'm sorting you by age, not sorting you by capacity, not sorting you by where you are socially, emotionally, as a child. Some people are ready for the next level. Some people are ready for more. Some people are crying out for more. But if you don't have the right advocacy or the right protection, then you just get sorted. Yeah. If nobody's coming to say, hey, this ain't right. Then, you know, and and you're a nice child and you're not raising a stink and you're not so bored that you're getting in trouble and, mm-hmm. you know, flying paper airplanes across the room, then you're cool. Everybody's fine in here because nobody's kicking up a stink. The class is well managed. Right. So everything's good. Right.
2: Managed is the word there. Right.
0: Managed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You have a lot of like management language at times and then you have a lot of, uh, you know, criminal justice language at times. Right. Yeah. Like a fight becomes an assault, right? You know, and and that type of language. Um, this this four year old assaulted me. He was the perpetrator, right? I heard that last week in the learning session. We we're talking about a four year old, and a teacher was telling me about the four year old and how he was a perpetrator. But there was a suspension ban on pre K to third graders, and it was just upsetting to her that um the perpetrator. Was was not having to uh, face any real consequences. Four year old, right? Pre K. So Netflix. The difference there is it's responsive. Mm -hmm. So when you sign into Netflix, and there's nobody in this room who doesn't have Netflix, you might be sharing it with four or five family members. right? (laughs) Right? You got four or five family members on there. Yeah, yeah. And it still wants to know. Who exactly is this? Right. Why? Because of their tendencies and it's
2: tracking what they watch. And let me make a recommendation based on your
0: tendencies. And we're, we're specifically serving you and your habits. We're specifically serving you and your habits and your history. And not only do we not charge rewind fees, we've kept everything you fail to rewind on pause for whenever you want to press play again. Mm hmm. We care so much about your tastes and preferences and your background knowledge and your viewing history and everything that brings you to us today that we've sorted everything we can to you. But when you walk to Blockbuster, have at it, man. Here's the 10 newest releases and here's the 10 hottest ones and here's the refreshments over here. And other than that, go find it or I can search it on the computer and tell you what it is if you can tell me the title exactly because otherwise (laughs) I don't know if it's going to search correctly. Right, right. Right? Yeah versus Netflix okay welcome but who exactly is this okay great here's what I think man you always watch comedy the new Chappelle's here right Mm mm-hmm yep Chris Rock did you ever see that one Oh, actually, I know you didn't see it. At least you didn't press play (laughs) on it here. So don't forget about Chris Rock because most people who like Chappelle like Chris Rock, too. I know you looked past it. You need to go
2: back and look at it again.
0: Yep. And your kids have not finished Moana for the 11th time, so we still got it on pause (laughs) for you, right? Now, translate that back to a student, right? Mm -hmm. And the student shows up, and the student still, I don't know, doesn't know how to write in quotations, or read for a main idea, or he still doesn't understand uh, the brain's relationship to the body. But at the end of the day, are our systems and is our technology um, advanced enough for us to know what students have not finished and have not mastered? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's like every year there's there's a new start. Every year there's a fresh start. Every year it's like you have this third grade landscape like little Johnny, as they call it, has been in your system, you know, since pre-K, kindergarten, first, second, third. He shows up to third grade and it's like everything's brand new again. Mm-hmm. Now Netflix can tell me what me or my child or my grandmother or my father has, you know, the last 10 things they've tried to watch and exactly where they finished with it and make recommendations on it. And then Blockbuster's like, hey, welcome to Blockbuster. May I help you? Right. From start. Right. So which one would you want? And this whole stuff about public versus charter, I get it. But there's also not one type of charter. Um, but I think it's really important to note that the only reason people are exploring with charters and private and other options is because they're not satisfied with Blockbuster. Right. That's it. If they were, they wouldn't shop around. Period. Yeah. And what's really crazy is Blockbuster could have bought Netflix for a paltry $50 million in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And they were like, psh, what do we, psh, what do psh, we, psh, we like, need with this? What do we We're Blockbuster. What am I going to buy Netflix for? Right. Now it's 2019. There's one Blockbuster left in the world, right? I don't think there's any Blockbusters there left not? in the world. I don't think so. Are there?
2: There's a, there's a story of like one in, I don't know, Alaska or somewhere. Yeah. And I think uh, I remember the day or uh, not the Daily Show. The, uh, this week with Last week with John Oliver was doing okay. some
0: bit on it. That's the only reason I know this. I have but. no idea. There is a, a straight up video store right there on a Galaxy and Jupiter. Still there? Still there. Wow. Also selling CBD oil. But the thing is, public school. Does public school as Blockbuster have the ability to buy Netflix right now? Hell no. Uh I would say yes. Really? Cuz I think buying Netflix would be adopting or adapting themselves uh to adopt Ugh. um being responsive to who children are. I think the schools are too big. I think they're not I pers- tell you living in Allen here.
2: Yes, the schools are our schools too big.
0: So I don't think Allen has a Netflix option, right? No. Netflix um, Allen's going to be Blockbuster. And if not Blockbuster just like a baloney plant. They, when,
2: well, I'll, I'll say this: I had a, I had this idea of what the Allen experience was going to be, and I wanted to pull mm-hmm. my kids out of it before it happened. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, there it's much better than I suspected it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's also this crazy side effect. I remember they they just built a new freshman center, but I remember seeing a picture of the old freshman center after the bell rang, and it was just one gigantic fire hazard, like it was literally squeezing cattle through the gate entrance. And I'm looking at this going, that's just insanity. Processing. That is absolute insanity.
0: And it's kind of the way UT was.
2: So I I do want to go to that for a second. I want to go to the hip-hop stuff. I do want to go about your own uh, educational experience. Ooh. You grew up in Garland. You went to UT. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like me, you got sidetracked by the chase of the music business. Yeah. But then you went back and finished and then went back and got your master's, mm-hmm, correct? Mm-hmm, All mm-hmm. at UT. You mm-hmm. got your master's at UT. Yes. Did you get your master's in education or social services? Education.
0: Or? Okay. Education. And
2: when you were getting your master's, what were you thinking you wanted to do?
0: Um, I was thinking that I wanted to learn a lot about this concept of equity in education. But on paper, it was a principalship degree. So learning how to lead a school, right? Mm-hmm. But I was like, ah, if I become a principal, my job is to uphold all the bullshit that I don't like, because right. that's what the district is doing. So right. my, I would be upholding the district's agenda. And people always tempt you with the, yeah, but you could completely change things if you were the principal. Right. You could bring in all your stuff and then you could like completely flip it and there'd be a whole new pair. Like. Okay.
2: So Admins that, are like yeah, uh, by insurance Netflix. adjusters or something, right?
0: Right. <laughs> a lot of, and, and a lot of times the black man gets lumped in as the administrator, as cop, mm-hmm. like disciplinarian right. person. You know, you got the radio and you do the investigations and you email the parents. Hopefully so, there will be a Lean on Me movie made about you. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I would, uh, I kind of I went undercover, if you will. And I was like, OK, I'm gonna check it out. I'm stay open to the concept. I even ended up doing a few interviews, you know, to be an administrator. But I was just so into the principles, P-L-E-S, of this educational equity concept, because that was really feeding me and kind of answering a lot of the natural questions I had from being in education in the first place. Like they would give you problems of practice and how to solve this and how to solve that and uh, the data of the way things are repeating over and over again and that gave me a big education. Learning about what No Child Left Behind was about, you know, Mm -hmm. and how, you know, Governor George Bush at one time was talking about the soft bigotry of low expectations. I was like, I didn't know George W. Bush had such a beautiful quote about education that I can use and sound really (laughs) fair to anybody who thinks I would not have a cool George W. Bush quote. Um, I I think as I got older,
2: I realized uh, W. had more soul than I realized he had, you know? Yeah. At the time, I was probably a little adversarial to him as a concept. And I think as I got
0: older, I thought, you know what? I think he's got a little more soul than I gave him credit for. I I know one quote, and that he owned the Rangers. (laughs) <laughs> and, some it, and some of it, and some of his family's names, yeah, that's it. Um, but that quote is fire, and um, mm, so yeah, I went, I went, and I studied to the best of my ability to be a principal, possibly. But the more and more, I remember one day we were having a class at a church in East Austin, um, what used to be the heart of the black community in Austin, and I just raised my hand. We were having a discussion about something. I was like, I don't want to be a principal. And I was like, oh. No, I said, I'd rather be some kind of hood literacy guru or something or like start my own little, you know, Netflix or something. And they were like, dang, well, why do you feel that way? And I said, man, everybody in this room, like 90 percent of us are going to be principals, at least some of us have already decided we won't be. But most of us will be. And what I wonder is when we get into those roles, are we going to do anything to change the predictability who succeeds and fails? Or are we just going to get some status and get a bigger check and be a principal and talk about how hard it is to achieve any of the things that we're studying about achieving here? So if I got to take another angle to maybe have a crack at inserting some Netflix, then that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm doing. And that's what you're doing yeah. now. And then there's some side stuff, too. Like besides the, the Austin job. What, what is Scholar MC? Yeah. 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 That. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, sometimes it's. You know, uh, hold
2: on. Before you answer that, I want to set something up because I'm very curious about this. Take I never your time. asked you about this. Okay. Um, what was it like? Because you've got another thing called Hip Hop Grew Up, yeah. which I'm really fascinated in. I've had, a, I've had conversations on this podcast with people about hip hop, what it is, and I've always boiled it down to, from my perspective, it's a youth movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, however,. You know, we were part of a youth movement, and then we got old, right? Mm -hmm, Or older. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Old's a state of mind. And so you have a whole thing called Hip Hop Grew Up, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it kind of dabbles in all this. But you were a music producer, rapper, creator working with youth, and hip hop is a youth movement. Mm -hmm. So when you were teaching, what did your students think about your hip hop past that's still obviously part of your present, but what you had done and what you had recorded? Um...
0: They think I'm cool.
2: <laughs> Are you the cool teacher? Do they like the music?
0: Uh, more than I would expect. Yeah. Um, but again, relationships. I think it would be one thing to listen to, you know, on the internet, you come across my music as a stranger and like, pfft. but another thing like, that's Mr. Blake's? Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of lot of Googling. Mm-hmm. Um, they think it's <laughs> cool. They think it's authentic. Like, it. It matches the person they know. Right, right, right. Um, they think that I care about what they're into that I might not be as far as like new artists and stuff, which is a fact. A lot of stuff that I listen to or try to put time into is because it's their thing. I even have like vans on right now because mm-hmm. it's their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, learned a lot of, uh, you know, Tejano and Corritos and th- different types of uh music from south of Texas right. because it's their thing. Right, right, right. Um, they, they think it's cool. I mean, when I got my day at City Hall, I took a lot of students with me. Uh, when I do performances at bigger community events, you know, MLK events and stuff like that, I usually have students from our district or people who are actually in my class or are in my class with me. So I try to make that, that stuff really interactive. And therefore, I think they, they, yeah, they think I'm famous. They think I'm cool. Um, and they really pay attention. And I try to leverage that in their uh, in their favor. Mm-hmm. And that's really what hip-hop grew up is. It's really a question of if we're born between 1965 and 84 and we've had an authentic hip-hop generational experience because that never existed before, mm-hmm. right? And now we're in the age of people can drop their, their kids off at school listening to hip-hop blaring out of the window, right. right? Hopefully that's all that's coming out of the window, but... Um, <laughs> Roll and, up like in Spicoli, my experiences in education, other things also come out of the windows, right yeah. in front of the school. Yeah. But um, <laughs> we're to that point now, right? Yeah. Then how do we leverage that experience? And you know how I was talking about, it's helped so much. And going having a hip-hop generational identity and having that experience from the first time around helps you in any other sector so much. Mm-hmm. It helps with engagement. it helps with you being able to think creatively and outside of the box. it helps you be able to problem solve. helps you to not be able to, it helps you to not freak out when you think that you know you're in danger of a ball dropping to the floor. You've had that experience how many times right. where you've had to figure it out yeah and find a way right And so that's what I really connected to the most is not just the artist part. But the spirit part, because when I look at the community where I've taught in the community that my heart kind of beats for when I think about education, which is those others, quote unquote, right? Right. That is hip hop. That is where it comes from. It's the same slice of our community It's the folks who have to figure it out, who right. have to be perceived as having less resources or less ability or just less of a shot. And yet you still end up with, you know, LeBron James. Yeah, man. Nas, whose dad tells him to drop out of middle school. Right. You know, Jay-Z, who to my knowledge still has no diploma, but has such a level of diplomacy. Right, right. so that's what I consider the hip-hop, you know, the question, hip-hop grew up, how does the original generation, how does the hip-hop generation leverage resources for today's generation? Mm -hmm. Us as parents, that's one answer. Mm -hmm. But I find that there's a million answers and at any time I'm looking through that lens, I can just see so many answers and so much relevance to what that culture has become on a global level. How that culture has transformed you know, the United States of America. And how does that play out now?
2: It's, it's, it's uh, manifesting creative urgency with no resources. Right, like that's uh, you know, it came out of the late seventies, mid mid to late Mm seventies, where people didn't have anything, Mm -hmm. and they
0: created an entire genre of music with what was laying Mm -hmm. around. Which means they had something, right? Right, 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 right. Right, That's a good point. But there's that there's a perception, and definitely comparatively, they didn't have anything.
2: They didn't have the instruments and the funding and some of these things that people from the general. Like I mean, we're talking about why were there so many great jazz musicians. Mm Uh well, they had instruments mm-hmm. and they had things to manifest that creative you know, energy and urgency. Right. And so when those resources dried up,
0: those energies are gonna come out some way somehow. Right, right. And it becomes the table. Yeah. Or the turntable right. or whatever's there. Or just making a rhythm with your mouth and make the music with your mouth. Yeah. And then that becomes a real Mm-hmm. and then that becomes and, and now and then someone commodifies it and makes all the money off of it and but now we see so many people doing so much with their laptop mm-hmm. and right. I feel like that's the same spirit it's become a DIY wave if you will but I think hip hop culture and it's impact has a lot to do with what people are now doing commonly on their laptops all over the place.
2: Are are you finding new hip hop or new rap music that you like? Or are you liking the music that people that you used to like are making? Does that make
0: sense? A little of both. A little of both. Um, I like when stuff comes back strong. I've heard... Surprising uh, Levels of output From people Making comebacks mm-hmm. Like the Smith and Wesson album Surprise me I didn't even know They made a new record It's great and it's Black right. Black Moon has a couple of New records out And they will surprise you Little Brother album Surprise me
2: Because
0: mm-hmm. That album's better Than I expected By a lot um, And then on the new side You know I'm a fan of Odyssey Big fan of Odyssey mm-hmm. uh, Big fan of Kendrick Lamar Yeah he's great Um Big fan of uh, some new jazz music that's coming out, like through some of the brain feeder people. Um, big fan of instrumental hip hop. Period mm-hmm. helps me uh, think and 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 be productive. Um, what else? I, don't, I I hear a lot of good R and B and soul music, but again, when people come back, I'm pretty impressed by that too. Who else has made a like a a comeback type of album? That's just it's not even a comeback. I think that folks are just able to produce at a high level now, again, because of technology and whatnot. And I don't know. I'm, I, we mix it up. We still listen to tribe and yeah, you know we listen to old school music. Um, my wife, thankfully has impeccable taste <laughs> on, on what to listen to. I
2: don't think you would have married her if she didn't.
0: I don't know. She's pretty dope. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm one of those folks. I have Q-tip in my top five, Yeah, you know, and that's pretty controversial. But to me, you know you have to have somebody who's got the jazz in your top 5 you got to have somebody who uh executive produced the infamous in your top 5 you got to mm-hmm. have somebody who knows the the strength of the 3 bar loop in your top 5 if right, you don't have right. one person like that then your top 5 is lacking um and i say all that to say both i like new stuff and i like people coming back again.
2: It, it, it's really interesting to me. Someone, uh, or maybe it was, uh, I had Sophia Chang on and she has this memoir called The Baddest Bitch in the Room. It's about yeah. her life and music. But she had a comment in there that I've always known, but I've never heard the particular number that people, most people stop seeking new music at the age of 30, which that's never been the case with me. But I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many people I went to high school with that are still listening to nothing but what they listened to in high school. And I've just, I've never been that person. No, it, I'm not that person. I, I have to. Constantly experience new music and, and all those kinds of things yeah. uh, I love talking music with you I mean I used to make music with you But I, I, I yeah. do want to I do want to go back to uh, uh, Scholar MC Because yeah. I, I cut you off there And then we segued So tell me about
0: that And I had a thought And it was that this week alone I've listened to uh, Baby and Juvenile's new album I've listened to Lil Baby And I've listened to The Da Baby <laughs> There's a lineage there. And Dub Baby is probably like one of the hottest rappers out right now, which is interesting. But he's actually a really good rapper who my students would probably laugh if they knew that I was listening to. So Scholar MC is kind of a, um, I remember those days of trying to figure out like what you do. And I feel like we were largely raised in our generation to figure out that one thing we do and do it well and retire doing it. I didn't grow up with a huge entrepreneurial push. Mm-hmm. I didn't grow up with a huge uh, choose your own adventure. And yet that was part of me. It was in me already. But it was like, okay, so are you going to be a journalist? And you're going to do broadcast? Are you going to do print? Are you going to do sports? Gonna be an engineer.
2: Did you leave as a journalism major when you headed to UT, were you thinking you're gonna be a journalist? I can't remember.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's okay. Absolutely. Worked in sports journalism yeah, the whole yeah. undergrad yeah, experience. Yeah. And
2: that's how you met Chris Wagner and
0: Yes. yes. I met Chris Wagner because I was an intern at the Dallas Morning News that's one right. summer. It's all coming print, back to me. The summer that too. elevators came out. Yep. Um and so yeah, that's that i that's been my strongest point of identity as well. I know if I'm nothing else, I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. Like, I was that when I was seven, Mm -hmm. if nothing else. Ironically, my son is two now. Um, If nothing else, I'm a writer. But then that hip-hop identity kind of kicks in, and it's like, oh, slash songwriter. Because poetry was one thing, or being able to write some stuff for school, or give a speech, or whatever. That was cool. But now there's the hip-hop thing. And this is cool, because one thing we left out, we said, okay, you grew up in Garland, you went to UT. But before I came to Garland, right? I had an all-black existence. I didn't start Garland Public Schools until I was in fourth grade, right? Mm-hmm. And I had the really interesting experience of going to um, Spring Ridge in third grade. Okay. Right by Berkner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like an alien experience. But what's really important was to know Spring Was
2: Spring Ridge mostly white?
0: <laughs> was it all white? I only remember one person that went to Spring Ridge. Like, I mean, out of all the teachers, all the students, it's my first year in Texas, and I remember one person, Eugene Andrews, a.k.a. the black dude.
2: <laughs> I am going to say, that's a shocking experience.
0: Eugene Andrews, a.k.a. the black dude. I don't remember any teachers. I don't remember anything we did. Wow. That whole year was just like, where am I? Wow. And I want to back that up because my parents are from Baton Rouge. If you fast forward a little bit I'm the only person in my family That did not go to a black college Right Okay But more so they're from Baton Rouge There is no integration Like that doesn't exist And then I'm born at Howard University uh-huh. And I'm born in the 70s Where your your last name is a brand name Essentially like a cattle brand name Like once owned by another family name Right Most of my ancestors were enslaved In the United States Like thrown in free with the land Like we'll bring you from Virginia And put you here because someone bought some land in Wilkinson County, Mississippi, Edgefield, Plantation. And we give Negroes away with the land. Kind of like Stephen F. Austin would give away 80 acres for every Negro you brought Mm -hmm. just to blow up the land. And so in Howard, I'm born and I go to a school that's very like independent, Afrocentric. Tana Heisey Coates, the writer. He talks about that specific school in his memoirs. It's called Nation House or Watoto Shule, same place. But it's the place that he says, wow, that's how I held on to my blackness, doing this drumming stuff. It's why why I ended up at Howard, Mm -hmm. right? It's a place where when you start the school, when you enroll, if you don't have an African name, they assign you one. Really? So these names like Bavu are given as counter narratives because folks are like grasping for any type of tradition that they can find because they've been taught, hey, you began with slavery. And still in our schools, when Black History Month starts, everything about black history begins with slavery right. and kinda goes up to the civil rights period and then right. you start talking about Obama and LeBron. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Beyonce. Right, right. But right. there are no black people five thousand years ago, at least in the, you know, typical narrative of the school, which is utterly ridiculous yeah. and historically crazy, but that's how it is, right? right. And so I was at a school where you got to learn Swahili. I was at a school where my first reading teacher is one of the ladies in the reparations hearing, you know, at in DC like a month ago. And so it was a very uh, concentrated environment, very advanced academically, and very super Afrocentric. That's the context with which I moved to Garland. Right. Specifically, first going to Spring Ridge. Right, right. So, from Dashiki Heaven (laughs) to Spring Ridge. Right, right. On a dime. Yeah. Because of Texas Instruments. My dad gets a job that's closer to home Mm -hmm. after getting uh, undergraduate, graduate. And so, I just wanted to add that to the context because hip hop for me… Choosing that expression as a writer and a creative person has a lot to do with that, too. Right. You know, that was the mode where you could, you know, everybody, all these different cultures could all enjoy a song called Black is Black is Black is Black, Black, Mm -hmm. which is also the first time we ever heard Q-Tips voice. It is. Um, And so that was a part of it for me, too, is like holding on to that part of the identity. Because when I got to that Richardson Garland Plano border, basically where I grew up. Suddenly, I had to negotiate something with people that I never had to negotiate before. I'm like exotic and different and other where we grew up, you right. know. Especially as a little like eight, nine year old, super nerdy kid who only knows what I knew. Whose name is Bavu. Right. Is that what is that? Yes. Yeah. What is that? What's that? What's that? What's that? And I was right. just like, what? <laughs> right. Right. You know. And you're at looking at a map in class, and you're in elementary school, and you're like. Does that say... And it's like, no, it's Niger in French or Niger. No, it doesn't say that. You know, all of that. I just really, really remember that as like a very crucial turning point. I would imagine. And so in hip hop, you were able to put yourself back at the center, your identity back at the center. is this expression where you... And we've worked together enough to know, for you to know that like... Putting your identity and your opinions and your views and all of that at the center when otherwise there's this tension of you not being at the center, it's super powerful to me. And that was my na- navigation tool. Mm-hmm. So then it doesn't matter where I am, Garland, Austin, whatever. I just look for the hip hop people and I make friends with them. Right. And then I cut a couple of them out because they don't fit or whatever. But that was my GPS for mm-hmm. so long. That's right. how I found people. And that was how. It was okay to be in mixed environments or minority, you know, environments where I'm viewed as a minority, et cetera, is I can find my people and they don't all necessarily look like me, but there is kind of a common language and understanding. I've heard you talk about this on the podcast about some of the things that you were able to glean, you know, through the culture and through the music. And so that really helped me at the center. So Scholar MC is the culmination of all of that because it's like, am I? a broadcaster or a writer or an artist because those slashes on business cards back in mm-hmm. turn of the century that's yeah, corny yeah. to me that is <laughs> corny and i remember sitting down with some business books uh with my wife uh, probably 2008 she gave me a couple of like business plans for dummies or whatever and it was like the general concept of branding and they said think about the things that make you you that seem disparate and put them together and that was hip-hop grew up, and I didn't know what it meant yet, uh-huh. right? And so scholar MC is almost like the same type of thing. Like, what are the things that you can't shed? And it was like, well, I will forever be an MC, and I will forever be a scholar. And so when I step into this realm, and I learn that a career based on writing, reading, listening, and speaking is a thing. Mm-hmm. Like some of the professors on my wife's dissertation committee, mm-hmm. I got to hang out with them, and they were talking to me like I was some kind of – scholar in the making and just because i guess off conversation or because who i was married to and they were like oh no you got all this field work what field work all those shows and all that hip-hop experience that's your field work like you have two decades of field work and <laughs> and you know how to write about it and articulate it and make translation and i started learning different words about uh, qualitative ethnographies mm-hmm. and uh, and i was like another type of language i said all right let me go find like fourth grade or middle school classroom And see if I really have the goods to be like a legit scholar and stepping into any scholarly place, like whether I'm a guest lecturing for a university or teaching seventh grade or working with teachers who are in undergraduate, you know, doing a workshop or now teaching principals and coaches all over the country. Now, there's a couple of contracts I also do where I go. You know, to remote places, Orange County and Orlando and San Diego and all these places and teach total strangers about different types of instruction, culturally responsive instruction, which to me is a big part of Netflix or robust writing instruction, no matter what content you're in. That MC part is always a part of it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes right in the middle of a talk. I'll just bust out rhyming, right? Mm-hmm. My wife says I should do it every time because that's what they want. <laughs> which it's is funny because what, what, what if what if they don't know you? Yeah, how do they want that and they don't even know you? But oh, they just don't know that they want it, but they want it. At the end of the day, somehow that's true. Uh-huh. So that MC experience, that hip hop identity, that it always is like a superpower every single time. So scholar MC means that I MC with the mind of a scholar, which I always did. Mm -hmm. I think about Lost and Found or played a role. Yeah, those are pretty, you know, those are pretty scholarly. I didn't think so at the time. I thought it was just rap, you know, through my voice. Mm -hmm. But I look back, and when I switched in education, so many people said, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." Oh, finally. Oh, this is about time. I was like, "Why come nobody told me?" Mm -hmm. Because I had a kind of dream about it back when we were recording. Never really acted on it. Thought, you know, my GPA is low or half the time I didn't even have my bachelor's yet. So I was like, I definitely can't do it yet. But when it came back around, it was like, I MC with the mind of a scholar and I'm a scholar with the mind of MC. And that's it. That's what it it means. It means as a scholar, I'm using an MC mentality and as an MC, I'm using a scholar mentality. And that's not something that I want to uh, divorce from or change because that is... um, you know, the autotrader.com commercials? Uh, There's what? all these cars. Yeah. And then they say, we want a white one. And sh- oh, yeah,
2: right. Two door, sh- Right? Shrinking
0: the Two field. Two is yep. Me as a scholar MC and understanding that, me as the question of hip hop grew up and understanding that, the world dramatically shrinks. The people who I need to engage with or talk to. Or need to be aware of me, quote unquote, to continue to be productive and fruitful in the work I'm doing is so much more feasible and so readily available and highly attainable by comparison to trying to be like a rapper chasing the exact same chicken wing as 10 million other people. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like the AutoTrader.com commercial. Yeah. So those the scholar scholar MC hip hop grew up. Those are that's language that. Puts me in a focus. Yeah. It keeps me like inside of the bumpers, allows me to hit a pin as opposed to gutter ball. Right. Because I'm blowing around in the wind right, searching right, right. for another creative idea. Creative people, you know, we're all over the place until we have an agenda set. It's making you more of a singular voice. Facts. That's yeah. what it is.
2: It. I don't, I don't know if we ever had this discussion or not, but you just brought it up. So when I, I went back to college in my late 20s, mm-hmm. and when you go back to college in your late 20s, I mean, it's like... I'm surrounded by people that feel like they're 30 years younger than me. Mm -hmm. My focus is get in, get the grades, get out. And I was studying film, and I got really into really just like master's level courses about representation of images and Mm -hmm. and the way media works and stuff. And one of the things I love discussing and learning about was the performance of identity. Mm -hmm. which is what play the role is about Mm -hmm. uh and so i always loved that song i loved your i loved your lyrics on that song i loved your flow on that song but i loved the concept of that song because it was something i was very interested in studying because people do it on a daily basis and you produce that song and hey and me and ruben produce that song right
1: Plenty cats talk noise going on and on Just yapping to they boys how they game so strong And they put it down all night long Blah, 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 blah etc But did anybody ask them any of that? No. So you know they just giving them useless information A.K.A. Trivia. trivia with no real Asian To nothing about which nobody cares So you gotta wonder why it was ever shared yeah. Are they punks trying to cover it up? Perhaps so, so shrunk they can't penetrate the naps Now you know Some kind of insecurities can be traced Cause folks be popping off at the mouth to save face Disgraceful, self-hateful, ungrateful for whatever they do, getting that so stupid. But there's a little of it in all of us. So this one goes out to all of us. Just because you play the role, that don't mean you get the part. Just because you play the role, it don't mean you get the part now. Nah. Just because you play the role, that don't mean you get the part, y'all. Just because you play the role, that don't mean you get the part, y'all. Mr. Bout be rap star quit your job the whole nine because you couldn't accept the corporate frame of mind college educated all that turned your back on the academics because your heart wasn't in it head spinning well being in a roulette wheel rolling the dice with your life like it's based on skill you eat through your own perseverance and will like an umbilical cord though you can barely afford your food clothes and shelter the pressure's on you won't let the heat melt you when you perform it's so intense it's literally all you got and you had all the nuts when you first gave it a shot balls to the wall All or nothing, ride or die, justified, and giving it the old college try. Trying to get your resume thicker, game, but can't complain. It's the rap game, the rap game. Now play the role, but that don't mean you get the part, y'all. Just because you play the role, that don't mean you get the part, nah. Just because you play the role, role, No, it ain't really locking unless you ain't washing it. How's that an option? If that's what you want, then fine, make it happen. If you're going for Goldilocks, not black one, sister girl with the perm is ditto for you. Paying your monthly dues to keep your hair due. And then you go to church service looking all clean. Although the God you pray to is who gave you the pro. host oh, sister, want to be with you for some reason. But scared, it's over every time he say he leave it. Going to the store for you and you don't believe him. Came back before you could blink. You think he's cheating. What up with all the videos you see, and if it hurts so bad, why don't you break free then? Y'all used to each other, been together so long, but sorry girl, this ain't that song. Just because you played a role.
0: It's probably the most important now song I ever made. Is that right? Yeah, the most pivotal important song I ever now made. Is that because why is that? that? Um one reason is probably the most popular song I ever made. Another reason is I'd come out of a song called Real Life that I did with Nick. And I'd released Create & Hustle and didn't know, okay, now what? And then these two folks just kind of drop out of the heavens. Uh, One named Jeff, one named Larry. And these are the production scenarios that I get to continually walk into and and polish my craft. But I felt like we hit something special with real life as far as tying together these different style of narratives in a way that I was really comfortable writing. So it was my most natural voice and yet there's meaning and yet there's pretty rich content and yet it's not very hard to come by. How Hmm. long did it take us to write that song? Like I wrote it in the studio. I think
2: you wrote it at Ruben's crib, right?
0: Very quickly because I, I was reflecting on real life and what I liked about it. The song. And so pivotal meaning I felt like that was a very authentic rapper voice. And, and what I mean by that is creativity. You take all your influences, you put them in a bowl, you add some water, you make this mud, you mm-hmm. put it on your face. That's your mask. That's mm-hmm. your performance identity. Right, 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 right. Eventually, that thing starts to harden. It starts to crack. You start to have a breakthrough. You're, you're able to now see yourself in your art. So you're not copying Jay Diller or Timbaland anymore. You're making a sound that's your own, but you had to start with that emulation. Right. Right. Yeah. And so I felt like play the role was where I started to see myself in my art. That middle verse mm-hmm. is probably one of the most important verses I ever wrote because I'm able to share my own vulnerability and truth and I'm wrapping play the role to myself and able to critique myself within the play the role framework. So it's not just me high and mighty talking about the white dude with the dreads or whatever. Like there's a whole verse to me about it. Yeah. So I felt like it, that was just the inside out. That's, that's when I broke into HD as a songwriter. <laughs> I love that it. song. Yeah, yeah. I love that
2: description. So you don't know this because uh, at the beginning of this podcast, we're playing the uh, remix Ruben and I did of mm-hmm. B-A-H-V-O-O, which mm-hmm. was my favorite remix that we ever did Texas of anything. Texas Jones. Yeah, because we produced the rhythm and the beats to your flow. Mm-hmm. That was the first song I heard by you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Adrian. I, yeah, and I remember hearing that and going, this guy's... Flipping awesome! Mm-hmm. This is beautiful. With Jorge on the cut, yeah, man, Baby G, Baby G brings everything together. He brings the whole world together. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll, uh, maybe one time we'll do a podcast with just me, and Baby G. We have to
0: because uh, he's like one of my favorite hip hop grew up stories ever. He he's a beautiful person. He's a leader of nurses.
2: He uh, yeah, which is amazing. <laughs> you know that's the, he's really my entrance point into hip hop because the first thing I did that was. Beyond me mixing records in my bedroom or whatever, mm-hmm. was interviewing Baby G when he was going back to defend the DMC title in, I guess, '91.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That was my first hip hop thing. And then after that, I interviewed Chill Rob G. And then, I, you know, and then suddenly, and G. then when I went back to UT, I interviewed uh, Chuck D for an hour hmm. in 1991 or '92. 92, 92, And it was when Can't Trust It had just come out. Yeah. And I thought I was going to get 10 minutes with him, and we talked for an hour. And it was a – you said pivotal. That was a pivotal moment in Mm -hmm. my hip-hop life Mm -hmm. because that's a hero. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't – I remember the first time I heard the lyric, writers treat me like Coltrane insane. And Mm -hmm. I'm going – well, and this is before the internet, right? So I'm like, well, I don't know what that means, but I got to know what that means. right? So now I have a painting of John Coltrane above my fireplace, right? It's those moments that – Force you down a path This is Mm -hmm. This is what you're talking about Okay so we have Five minutes here Before we wrap up Okay So what is it That we have not covered With what you're doing And your experience In the education system That the people That are listening right now Absolutely have to know Or absolutely have to hear Or Maybe something That you can send them to That'll Get them going down The right rabbit hole
0: Mm, Right now I'm doing a Monthly Essay If you will somewhere between 12 and 2,000 words. And it coincides with each month of the school year. Mm-hmm. And that's available on uh, ScholarMC.com, my website. And I'm releasing a book for the first time. What? In September. What? Yeah, a children's book called "El's Mirror. It's not just a children's book, but it's presented as a children's book. It's actually more of like a, anti-racist tool for families and educators so it's like if you want to be able to have discussions with your children around differences of identity and the impact of certain types of education and whatever it's like a children's book something that a 10-year-old could easily read but it's also a discussion tool for parents and their children and teachers and their children etc it's called Ellesmere it's based on my son's kindergarten experience um yeah that's something else too I just wanted to say I have two children and uh, September is a fun month Because the first is my wedding anniversary The fourth is my wife's birthday The sixth is my birthday The 22nd is my son's birthday And the 28th is my daughter's birthday That is the month of Team Blake's Yes <laughs>
2: That is the month of Team Blake's right there yeah. That's
0: incredible But other than that Education, five minutes or less What do we say?
2: Hmm Let me ask you this Are you Hopeful? Hopeful like, do you feel good about the direction of things? Yeah,
0: I feel great about the direction of things. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I get to travel a lot. I get to write a lot. It's like life has been sort of resolved. I'm in a space of appreciation. Uh, I don't think I'm like great at anything I'm doing, you know, but I'm good and moving in a really solid direction. I think my greatness is. Probably astronomical. So, I want to see what that looks like finally. Um, because I've had a lot of experiences of being good and being a gateway drug to greatness, you know, collaborating with people who move, uh, to what I see is, as greatness. So, I'm, I'm i'm greatly associated. But I think just, uh, traveling around the world or right now, just the country and releasing this book, and it seems like everybody in my family is working on a pretty important book. Um, I just, I, I, I just want to be part of the Netflix of education mm-hmm. to simplify it, to simplify it all. Even in all the work I'm doing, I feel like I'm getting paid to learn and the way that I want to apply it um, before the age of 50 is to be a part of the Netflix of education. If I get to do that for 25 children and change their experience, then it'll just be 25. It'll just be a really small, amazing operation. Um, I want to experiment with ideas like not paying for real estate and instead instead using that budget for experiences and exposure I want to try some different things that uh, kind of pivot the center and those others who are always kind of predictably losers I want to be able to position them for the win first um, kind of turn things on its head a little bit um, and I want to just help teachers to have agency to have to feel like they can be in control of their environment and not just under a bunch of rubble of you know what's bad about um their opportunity or their job the young teachers usually come in on fire some of the old ones i don't know if you can help at all they're just waiting for retirement Mm -hmm. abusing the crap out of kids every step of the way but are they um, the danny glover character in lethal weapon I guess so. Is he the curmudgeon? (laughs) It is what it is. He's he's the one who's always, I'm too old for this. And then suddenly he's like jumping down a tunnel of fire or whatever. There's a lot of teachers like that in uh, low-income communities of color, like doing a lot of damage. I see it all the time. But um, I just want to be part of Netflix, I guess I would say. Yeah. Uh, The Scholar MC should be part of Netflix. And every time I release a book, I get the pleasure of making a theme song about it. Because I do really miss making music a lot. Um, I don't do music much. I do I have a cover thing I do like every three, four months. Just rapping the classics, mm-hmm. Ice Cube, mm-hmm. Snoop Dogg, and that Feral fe- Munch. That feeds the performance. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's fun to be like uh uh soon to motivate the room, control the game like Tune Raider, Rock, Clock. <laughs> <laughs> Lyric dollars flip tips like a way to block shots, style greater let my lyrics annoy. You. I would never know those words unless I had that opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So um that's it, man. I'm I'm fortunate and very hopeful. But this Netflix thing, man, I think about that every single morning. Make it happen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> So I hope you enjoyed that conversation I truly always love to see that man shout out to his lovely wife Tiffany who was patient enough to hang out with us here at the Free Donation Studios as we recorded that podcast he was actually in town brought his kids because his folks still live here in the DFW area in the Garland area Uh, so we stole some time from the family early on a Sunday morning but I'm really happy that we did thank you to Bavu for the time I would encourage you to go down the Google rabbit hole with Bavu Blakes, B-A-V-U Blakes, and check out his back catalog of music. He is truly one of my favorite rappers, great voice, great flow, and so damn much to say. Thank you to all the folks that listen to this podcast. Would love it if you subscribe so that every single one that comes out goes directly into your ear hole as soon as it's ready. I mentioned Frito. Thanks to him. Thanks to Ben. Thanks to the folks at 105.3 The Fan. And as always, thanks to the Jizza for the inspiration.